0: Well, good morning. Good to be with you. Uh, If you have your Bible, go ahead and open up to Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3 is where we are headed today as we just keep on going through this great uh, letter, this great book. Um, And so, for the past few weeks, uh, while you're opening there, the the past few weeks, the, the men's group has been reading a book about the history of Christian spirituality. All right, and one of the things that's come up in several of our conversations is the fact that when you start talking about spiritual life, you become a poet. You just have to become a poet. Uh, Every time we open our mouths to say something about spirituality, we end up using some kind of metaphor. Uh, So, you know, one example, we use the metaphor of a journey. Right? And, and we say, you know, how, how's your walk with the Lord? Anyone ever use that kind of language before? Right? We use this metaphor of a journey, uh, of a uh, going somewhere. Or, or, you know, we might use the metaphors kind of of biology. We, we talk about healing, right? Spiritual healing or, or growth, you know, growing in God just the way that animals and plants do, right? Or, or maybe we use metaphors of, of slavery and, and imprisonment we talk about redemption. We talk about freedom, right? Right? All of these are, are, are natural words to use as we try to describe spiritual life, but they're all metaphors, right? They're all a kind of poetry. If we're going to talk about God, at some point we're going to become poets, Uh, And so, you know, this past week, we're we're continuing through this book, reading about the history of of the first few centuries, and we came across a couple of historical figures who both used metaphors to describe spiritual growth. But the metaphors that they used were were quite different from one another, right? So, So one of these guys was named Origen. origin of Alexandria. He lived in Egypt in the third century, and he was a very influential early theologian. And he described, this is the metaphor that he used, he described the spiritual life as movement toward light. Movement toward light. He described prayer as lifting up our heads from the shadows of earth to look toward the bright light of heaven. And, And but then another figure that, that we looked at this week, uh, who lived only a hundred years later, was named Gregory of Nyssa. All right? he, he lived in, in modern-day Turkey in the 4th century, and he was another incredibly influential thinker and, and theologian. Uh, but he, unlike Origen, uh, did not describe spiritual life as movement toward light. He described it as movement toward Darkness. Movement into darkness. He he wrote a a whole book about spiritual growth based on the life of Moses. And and what he said is that like Moses, most of us first encounter God in light, right? Just like Moses did in the burning bush, right? The light of this flame. But ultimately, as we continue growing in God, continue journeying, uh, we eventually encounter God in darkness, just like Moses did in the cloud on top of Mount Sinai, this dark and mysterious place. So in other words, what he says is is that what begins with knowledge ultimately moves toward mystery. As we experience God more and more deeply. So, so why am I sharing all of this with you? Well, you know, one, it's it's just this beautiful imagery and interesting and fascinating uh, piece of history. But also because it's a it's a great example of the diversity that exists in Christian thought, right? I mean, it it seems like these two ideas, movement toward light and movement toward darkness, would be utterly opposed to one another, and yet they're right next to each other in church history. They're right next to each other in this book that we're reading about church history. But what I think they both have in common is that whether spiritual growth is movement toward light or movement toward darkness, both are ultimately a movement toward something far beyond what we can see. Far beyond what we would ever uh, imagine. To put it another way, whether you're driving east during sunrise— or driving through the fog that we had about a week ago, uh, either way, your visibility is not that great, right? Because the the sun is blinding to be facing that while you're driving, but the fog is concealing. Either way, you can't see much. And sometimes, life with God feels like this. There's a mystery to it. There's something sort of blinding and... And, and concealed about it. And that's what Paul writes about in our passage today. Ephesians chapter 3. He, he writes about the mystery of God and the surprising ways that God invites us into this mystery. So let's read this together. Ephesians chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. This is the reason that I, Paul, am a prisoner. For Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, for surely you have heard of the commission of God's grace that was given me for you, and how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I wrote above in a few words, a reading of which will enable you to persevere my understanding of the mystery of Christ. In former generations, this mystery was not made known to humankind as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. That is, the Gentiles have become fellow heirs, members of the same body, and sharers in the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I have become a servant according to the gift of God's grace that was given me by the working of his power. Although I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to me to bring to the Gentiles the news of the boundless riches of Christ and to make everyone see what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the wisdom of God in its rich variety might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was in accordance with the eternal purpose that he has carried out in Christ Jesus, our Lord, in whom we have access to God in boldness and confidence through faith in him. I pray, therefore, that you may not lose heart over my sufferings for you. They are your glory. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for the ways that you invite us into the mystery of your goodness and holiness. God, I pray that, as we consider the words of your scripture today, that you would sharpen our minds and soften our hearts, that we might know you and love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, so so this is a pretty interesting passage. I mentioned in the email that I sent out on Friday that that most scholars agree that the verses we just read are, are mostly just an aside, kind of a side comment that Paul makes. It's a long side comment, but it's a side comment, right? In verse 1, he begins, This is the reason. Uh, and then he kind of trails off and, and makes some comments and says some things. And then down in verse 14, right after where we just left off, he gets back on track and says again, Okay, okay for this reason, right? And everything between verse 1 and verse 14 is kind of the side comment that Paul has written. And so throughout all of these, throughout all of this that we've just read, he he refers over and over again to mystery, right? We read that word at least four times throughout the passage, mystery. Now, what exactly does Paul mean by mystery? You know, I think a lot of times whenever we think about mystery, we we think it means something that we just can't know. Something that's just completely unknowable. If it's mysterious, then it's unknowable. But that's not exactly what Paul says here. After all, he keeps talking about this mystery as something that's been revealed. Right in verse 3, the mystery was made known by revelation. Revelation. In verse 4, he says, perceive my understanding of the mystery. In verse 5, this mystery has now been revealed. And then again, down in verse 9, to make everyone see what is the plan of the mystery. And so this mystery is something that's been revealed, that's been shown. Now, I want to say a couple of things about this, all right? First, um, this seems to be, on Paul's part, a, a direct criticism of the sort of pagan Gnostic religions that were very popular in that day, right? These religions relied on its adherents to, to, to sort of have this special secret knowledge. That's, that's what they were all about. There is this sort of this secret knowledge in order to get into the club, uh, and, and that guard, you guarded that secret knowledge. You You kept that in the club. You didn't share it with anyone else, right? That's sort of what these Gnostic mystery religions were about. They were mysterious. And they were exclusive. Right? And there are modern-day versions of stuff like this right on a social level uh there are sororities and fraternities for example where you have to go through some kind of special process before you can be in the club and have access to all the secrets and traditions and things that that club does you know on an intellectual level uh, there are all kinds of special disciplines where you have to know something like latin uh or computer coding uh or some other kind of special knowledge in order to to be a part of it in order to pursue it Right, These things can kind of feel exclusive because you can't get the knowledge unless you're in the club, but you can't join the club unless you have that knowledge, right? And so what Paul is saying is that Christianity is not like that. Christianity is not like that. There's not some kind of secret knowledge or ceremony that you have to to go through or learn in order to have access, Right? The truth has been revealed and is being proclaimed. This is not just some Gnostic cult uh, like all the other ones that you're hearing about. It's the truth of God, and everyone is welcome. So this is what Paul is saying here. But even though it has been revealed, Paul still calls it a mystery, right? So it's not like all of these pagan mystery religions, but it is mysterious. What does he mean by that? Well, as we look through the passage, I think we see that when Paul uses the word mystery, he's not referring to something that's unknowable, but rather something that's unexpected. It's not that it's a secret, but rather a surprise. When Paul describes the gospel as a mystery, he means that it is something you would never have imagined. You never would have thought of this on your own. It's something that is completely counterintuitive, but absolutely true. It's not unknowable, but it's unexpected, right? So throughout the passage, I want to identify a few unexpected ways that God reveals His mystery. And like all these metaphors we've already been talking about this morning, I I sort of have an illustration that I'd like to share with you all. Have any of you ever seen a photo mosaic? You know what I mean by that? It's it's a mosaic made up of a bunch of small photos that together make a large picture of something else. Uh, Have you ever seen one of these kinds of things? Yeah. Yeah. So this is the image that came to my mind as I was reading through this passage this week. This photo mosaic. Now, in Friday's email, um, I, I asked for folks to submit a photo, and and if I got enough, I was going to try to pull them together and create a photo mosaic of our own. Unfortunately, uh, I, I don't think I sent it soon enough because I didn't get very many responses, so thanks to those who did send something, um, but... I don't have a a sort of um, personalized photo mosaic, but I did find one online that I think at least illustrates the point. Uh, So, take a look. You can't see all the details on the screen, you know, because it's way up there and you're down there, but it's made up of a bunch of photos of people. A bunch of little individual photos of people that make up a larger photo a larger image. And I think that this image helps to illustrate what Paul is saying about the mystery of the gospel and our passage. This mystery is revealed in surprising and unexpected ways. And as I mentioned, I I, want to identify a few of these as we go through the passage. God's mystery is revealed. uh, There are three things that, that I see. It's revealed in personal identity, God's mystery is, is revealed in sacrificial generosity. And God's mystery is revealed through diverse community. All right. Personal identity, sacrificial generosity, and diverse community. So let's consider each one of these. And I'm going to kind of connect these themes to this image that we'll just leave up there. All right. So, so first, personal identity. All right. A photo mosaic. As we've already said, is this big picture made up of many parts, but the base of it are individual photos. And I think one of the unexpected ways that God's mystery is revealed is personally in and through you. God's kingdom is transforming the whole world, right? It is this cosmic thing. But one of the ways that God transforms the world is in and through you personally, right? We discover God's mystery as we learn about and reflect on our own lives. Personal identity is one of these unexpected ways that God reveals his mystery. You know, no one would have ever imagined that something as universal as God could be revealed in something as personal as our own life. And yet, this is what we see God doing all throughout scripture, really, right? He's always calling people by name, Abraham, Moses. He calls a people for himself through whom he seeks to redeem the world. And often we've been told, Otherwise, we've been told that, that God doesn't do this stuff personally, right? We've been told that, that we need to stop being so selfish, we need to stop thinking so much about ourselves. We need to, to deny ourselves. I mean, didn't Jesus say that? And he did. But I just want to say there, there's a difference between selfishness and self-reflection, right? The latter is necessary to become free from the former, You need self-reflection in order to stop being selfish. And though Jesus does call us to deny ourselves, he also constantly calls people by their personal names. All throughout the Gospels, Simon Peter, Lazarus, Martha, Mary, right? All of these different names came from the mouth of Jesus himself. He called people personally. And so here in our passage, we see that Paul brings his own name into the mix to share some of his own story, right? We see Paul model this idea of mystery revealed through personal identity. In verse 1, he writes, I, Paul, I'm a prisoner for Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles. In verse two, he describes the commission of God's grace that was given to me, right? He talks about himself. In verses seven and eight, again, he writes of this gospel, I have become a servant. You know, although I am the very least of the saints, this grace was given to me. And so Paul is beginning to tell some of his own story. Reflect on his own personal identity. You know, the first two chapters of the letter, Paul has been waxing eloquent on all these grand and cosmic wonders of God. You know, he's written about the foundation of the world, the praise of God's glory, the heavenly places, all these grand things. He's been telling the big story of God, but here in chapter three, he begins to get personal and he shares some of his own story. And we see Paul do this all the time in other letters that he writes. He talks about God, he talks about Christ, but he also shares himself. And so I want to ask you, what is your story? Right in the midst of God's grand story, what is your story? Who are you? What are you doing here? Where do you come from? Where are you going? Who are you becoming? These are these personal questions, these parts of our own stories. And here in this passage, Paul models the reality that God reveals the mystery of himself within your own life, within your own narrative. And and this mystery, this this truth that God reveals himself in this way is taught throughout the history of the church. In the 4th century, Augustine prayed, Grant, Lord, that I may know myself so that I might know you. In the 15th century, there was someone named Thomas Akempis who observed a humble self-knowledge is a surer way to God than a search after deep learning. Don't go after a bunch of new information. Reflect on your own heart, right? You have to know yourself for God's mystery to be revealed, right? In the 16th century, John Calvin explained nearly the whole of sacred doctrine consists in these two parts knowledge of God and knowledge of ourselves, right? If we want to know about God, We have to spend some time reflecting on our own selves. So I want to encourage you to do that. Spend some time in self-reflection, considering your own story. Who are you? Where do you come from? This is one of the unexpected places that God reveals himself. But another way, you know, we've got personal identity. Another way is sacrificial generosity. Alright, right, so so back to our photo mosaic here, right? Earlier, we considered the, the basic building blocks of the image. It's these personal identities, these individual pictures. But now, sort of zooming out, look at the big picture here, right? This photo mosaic creates the picture of the cross, which is a symbol of sacrifice and generosity. You know, I think that this is quite a mysterious way for God to reveal himself because, you know, our our culture in many ways has taken a hold of that idea that personal identity is important, but it's often distorted that from from personal self-reflection to individual self-absorption, right? Self-indulgence, sort of an individuality. And, and that has gone wild and become these great big cultural messages of comfort and wealth. You know, every ad that we see is telling us this story that the world revolves around you. It, this past uh, sort of few months, Caitlin and I have often uh, taken some time to just play some games together in the afternoon. Um... It's, you know, what else are we going to do? We're all kind of staying at home more often lately. And so we recently um, picked up the game of life, right? Anyone ever play that? Super fun. Uh, Just laid back, fun. But the whole point of the game is to make it through life and at the end to have the most money. That's who wins, right? At the very end, you add up all your money and whoever has the most wins. It's the same as Monopoly, and much of our culture tells us that this is true, right? That when you get to the end of your life, if you have the most stuff, if you have the most money, then, then you won. But that is not the way of the gospel, right? This gospel is revealed mysteriously, not through comfort and wealth, but through sacrifice and generosity, And this cuts against the grain of these cultural messages and individual desires. God reveals himself through sacrifice and generosity. And so we see this throughout the passage as well. In the first verse, Paul does not only refer to himself personally by name, but he also describes himself as a prisoner. And and most scholars agree that Paul likely wrote this letter while he was in prison. And so he's not just sort of metaphorically talking about himself as a prisoner for Christ. He is very literal, literally in prison because of Christ, because of the work he's been doing and proclaiming the gospel. And he references this again towards the very end of the passage in verse 13. I pray therefore that you may not lose heart over my sufferings for you. They are your glory. And so somehow mysteriously, glory is revealed through suffering. And we see this theme in the passage another way as well. In verse 2, Paul writes, the commission of God's grace that was given me for you. And then down in verse 9, he writes, to make everyone see what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God. Now, you may not see the connections here yet, but we can't tell in our English translations. But these two verses, verse 2 and verse 9, share a common word. The word commission of God's grace and the word plan of the mystery are, are the same word in Greek. It's, it's this Greek word, oikonomia. Oikonomia, all right? Literally, house law, right? It's, it's sort of just the order of things. This is the way that things are. The oikonomia. But does it sound like any English word that you know? Economy. That's where we get the word economy. The, this word that describes just sort of the, the flow of, of goods and wealth and, and things like that. But what Paul is saying here throughout this passage is that in the economy of grace, those who have give generously. Right? He says the commission, the oikonomia of God's grace was given to me for you. I received this grace from God so that I could give it away to you. Or then again, down in verse nine is where this word shows up again to make everyone see what is the oikonomia of the mystery hidden for ages in God. Right? In the economy of grace, those who have Give generously, right? This is not like the Gnostic cults we were talking about that stored up secret knowledge for themselves. In the gospel, the knowledge we have, we proclaim, we give it away freely, right? And it's not like sexu- se- secular culture that stores up riches for itself. Rather, God gives so that we can give. God blesses us so that we can be a blessing to others. You know, and and we we practice this together each week when we take up some kind of offering, right? It's not just a practical part of the service to sort of keep the, the church running. It is a part of the service where we acknowledge that God has given to us so that we can give right and we also practice this actively by by looking for ways that we can love and serve our neighbors every day right to get outside of our comfort zones and live lives of of generosity and service and the economy of grace the one who has gives generously right and this is another counterintuitive way that God reveals his mystery. It goes against the grain of everything that, that is instinctual, that wants to hoard, everything that's cultural, that tells us everything's about us. God reveals his mystery through generosity and through sacrifice. There's, there's one more thing that sort of leads us uh, to, to the, this, this final uh, way that God unexpectedly reveals himself. You know, if you have a bunch of people together who are committed to the meaning of their stories and also committed to the importance of generosity and sacrifice, then you end up with a diverse community that is devoted to one another. And this is what we see, ultimately, in a photo mosaic like this, right? On a small scale, you have these individual stories. On a large scale, you have this image of the cross. When all of this comes together, you have this diverse mosaic of community that reveals the way of Christ, the cross. Ultimately, you have the church, right? And this is absolutely unexpected, mysterious. I mean, on on the surface, church is fairly ordinary. It's just a bunch of people getting together To, you know, usually sing songs, to exchange words. There's nothing all that impressive about church, really. You know, we, we are a bunch of hodgepodge people from all sorts of different places. Churches are made up of so many different people, young and old, rich and poor, different races, different cultures. You know, and judging by our society, that is a recipe for disaster. Put a bunch of people with a bunch of differences together, they're going to fight, right? And if you've been around church, yeah, sometimes that happens, right? Sometimes people do fight. But somehow, mysteriously, God reveals himself through this hodgepodge bunch of people called the church. Right, Paul already wrote about this in the passage that we looked at last week. Right, In Christ, God has made two groups of people into one, broken down the dividing wall. But he reiterates that in this passage. In verse 6, he writes again, the Gentiles have become fellow heirs, members of the same body, sharers in the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Right? The church is this diversity of people, Jews and Gentiles, all fellow heirs, all members of the same body. And all of this comes together in verse 10, where he writes, so that through the church, this hodgepodge bunch of people, through the church, the wisdom of God in its rich variety might be made known to the rulers, the authorities, in the heavenly places. God reveals himself mysteriously through this diverse bunch of people. And and he's talking about us, the church, but he's also talking about the universal church. Not just one body of people, not just one congregation locally, but congregations all around the world. Right? Some of which might describe spiritual growth as movement toward the light, some of which might describe spiritual growth as movement into darkness. Some of which, you know, gather and and sing hymns, some of which gather and sing contemporary songs, some of which gather and have some formal liturgy that, that they work through, some of which are much more freeform, right? The church is such a diverse expression of God. The the wisdom of God is known in its rich variety. That's what verse 10 says. And so there are all these different ways that God reveals himself. Not just one way, but so many different ways. And it's a mystery. And so these are the things that that God does to reveal Himself. He does so personally. He does so through generosity and sacrifice. But He also reveals Himself as it all comes together in a diverse community that learns from one another and expresses itself in all its rich variety of ways. And so here's the challenge that I want to leave you with this week. We've talked about stories, and so I just want to reiterate that. Take some time this week to consider your own story. Where you're coming from. Who you are. Where you fit into this big picture, right? Who are you? Try sharing some of your story with someone. You know, give me a call. I'd love to, I'd love to talk. I'd love to hear that from you. You know, talk through what that story is for you. Share it with someone else. But then the other challenge that I have for you is if we're going to be a diverse community that loves and appreciates one another, we also need to listen to one another's stories. So don't only share your story. Ask to hear the story from someone else. Ask to hear, hey, who are you? Where are you coming from? Tell me more about yourself. Someone you don't already know. These are the ways that God will reveal himself to us. Mysteriously, wonderfully, this is how we get to know God's grace.